I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What we know about the medieval period comes, in large part, from what people wrote down about themselves and others. How do we find out about the less literate societies, like the Vikings, for example? Kat Jarman has spent the last few years working on the remains of the great army at Repton, and the material artifacts that they left behind. In her new book, River Kings, she talks about the huge leaps archaeology has made with new technologies, and all we can now learn from the teeth in particular, jewellery, and even the metals of the Vikings. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I am an archaeologist and bioarchaeologist, and I specialise in the Viking Age. So it means that most of my work is based on looking at human remains and all the sort of scientific evidence that we can tease out of bones. And I also write books about the Vikings and, uh, yeah, run excavations from in England and in Ukraine. It sounds wonderful, wonderfully interesting. But the term Viking brings with it quite a lot of popular culture, doesn't it? That must be something that you have to fight against all the time. I mean, going back to the earliest days of Hollywood, Vikings are quite sort of sought after, aren't they, as metaphors for adventuring and pillaging and stuff. Yeah, it's a bit of a double-edged sword in a way. I think in some ways it's fantastic because it creates a lot of engagement and a lot of interest. And I think, especially now... There's so much interest in the Vikings, and I don't think that would have happened if it wasn't for programs like Vikings, The Lost Kingdom, and, you know, games, and and all, you know, Vikings are kind of everywhere. They're in the popular imagination, and that's great for us, because actually a lot of people take that, and then they go, okay, that's great, but what about the real thing? So I think, in, in some ways, that's absolutely wonderful. But it does, as you say, 
carry with it some some quite difficult things as well and quite a lot of misconceptions. Some of those are just annoying, the whole, you know, hoard helmet things you have to keep on repeating. But other things are maybe a little bit more problematic. It tends to be something that appeals to some parts of society that that might be quite... Um... Yeah, because you get into the whole sort of extreme politics a little bit, don't you? That's all sort of tied up with this sort of oddness that goes with runes and all of those kind of things. So you sort of almost can't fully disassociate yourself from that. I mean, a little bit like, for example, the swastika. The swastika is an ancient symbol used in you know, the Far East. It was used on Roman shields, for example. And I know some Roman reenactors just have to not use the swastika on their shields. Even though it was authentic for the period, it means too many awful things for modern people to, to separate out. So they just don't, they don't bother. I suppose we're not quite at that extreme yet with the with Viking symbolism, but we're getting there sometimes. Yeah, no, actually, I mean, unfortunately, in some, some parts of the world, it, it is that extreme. So the Thor's hammer, for example, which is used by so many different people in Scandinavia, uh, that was a very popular symbol, uh, has been and still is really among the neo-Nazi groups. And so a lot of people uh, feel like they can't wear a Thor's hammer, you know, because it might signal to some people that, that they are part of, of that particular demographic. And so... That can get really problematic and it's, it's really difficult what you do with that. Do you then sort of move away from those symbols or do you try to sort of get them back and say, no, you can't appropriate <laughs> that um, and actually sort of fight against it? But it's, it's a tricky one. We've gone slightly down a darker area than I was <laughs> expecting to straight away because I've read a little bit about the Vikings and obviously my area of interest is the medieval period, which encompasses a thousand years of European history, which of course is an absurd thing to say you're interested in this thousand years. The Vikings are, broadly speaking, early medieval, aren't they? Is that used to be called Dark Ages? Is, is that right? And where does that come on the on the scale of academia these days? <laughs> yeah, so that term is, is another interesting one that a lot of people absolutely hate and, and want to stop using completely. And I guess it is still quite descriptive in a way, because if you think of it, in, not in terms of the sort of idea that people weren't able to do anything. It's not like a negative. It's not that, that people were living such horrible, miserable lives that it was as a dark age, but more that we don't have the amount of information that we had, you know, about the Romans, for example. So there's a big contrast. We don't have the written evidence. There's so much we don't know. So in, in that sense, it's sort of helpful. But actually, really, we do know a hell of a lot about it. And certainly when we get into the Viking Age, or sort of from 750 onwards, even though the Vikings themselves didn't write down, they haven't, you know, we haven't got literature from the Vikings themselves. Other people write about them and later people write about them. But, uh, you know, even so, there's such a rich amount of evidence from the archaeological record, especially. So, so it's really not that dark in that sense. <laughs> so the very term Viking, I was led to believe that it was more of a job description than an ethnic group. Is that accurate or is that an oversimplification? How would they have self-identified, for example, there's a sort of the Sea Raiders or whatever? It's a really good question because we actually don't know. We have no idea, really. It's quite clear that they wouldn't have called themselves Vikings. Vikings is a useful term, but it's, it's a term that really we give them. It's certainly not, as you say, an ethnic label. So you can't take a DNA test and say that you're a Viking, even though people try to do that quite often. But, you know, there isn't really such a thing. It seems like identities were much more localised. So if you look at some of the records that we do have and, and, you know, where we talk with people, they might talk about where they've come from and they talk about the region. So it's 
much more sort of small scale. And we, we don't actually have the countries of Norway, Sweden and Denmark, the Scandinavian countries, don't form until right at the end of the period. So even though in all the English records, Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, they talk about the Danes, it doesn't necessarily mean that they were from what we think of as Denmark. That's a sort of catch-all term, really. But, I mean, the word Viking really does refer to sort of going out, raiding or going out on these expeditions, not necessarily violent ones, but that really is is where that comes from. So I don't think somebody would say, well, yes, I am a Viking. I think, you know, maybe they would say that they're going, you know, on a sort of expedition that is a sort of Viking expedition. But yeah, absolutely not an ethnic term. But we don't have anything else. So we were a bit stuck. <laughs> so I'm quite happy because we all know, you know, we use that as a shorthand, really. There was an exhibition in Sweden called The People We Call the Vikings, which was a title of it. And I think that's that's quite a nice way of thinking about it. That, that is quite sweet. I mean, terms are funny, aren't they? Because they mean lots of things to lots of people. And it's like having jargon. When you publish a book with Viking on the title, people kind of know what you mean. But once you sort of start to open up the term and look into it in a bit more detail, it, it sort of becomes a bit more nebulous. I presume... I mean, you talked about they were going on seaborne expeditions. So was this very much part of the what we call the Viking culture, the idea of get in a boat with some friends and go and explore? And, and is there a, a reason why that seems to have happened or caught the popular imagination of the time? That seems to be a thing they all wanted to do. Yeah, it pretty much is one of those defining features, I suppose, of what we call the Viking Age. It is this outwards expansion, especially overseas. I think it happens for a number of reasons. One of them is the technology. So it's the ships. So the ships are really developing right at the beginning of that period. These beautiful, wonderful Viking ships that are so well suited to long distance journeys. And the new things, new developments are, you know, the big keel that makes them very stable. The shape of the hull that's very flexible. So they go across the North Sea without any problems at all. And the use of the sail as well, which people have been using sails for, for much longer. You know, Romans had sails, Egyptians had sails. But in Scandinavia, in Northern Europe, it wasn't really used. So the combination of all of that suddenly meant that it was very possible. And so you got these fantastic ships that can go across the North Sea or across the Baltic or wherever, and then they can land on a beach, you know, silently, quickly, easily, shallow water. And then, as you know, one of the keys to, to my research in my book, which I've named River Kings, because rivers actually are really crucial to that success as well. So I think that technology is one big part. But then the fact that they can do this and there's this travel, there's this contact, the trade networks, the journeys, you know, you can suddenly you can get not just across to the North Sea, you can go to Iceland, to Greenland, to North America, all the way down east, down the rivers of, of Eastern Europe, down to Constantinople. There's all this huge reach that brings things back. So it brings money, it brings wealth, silver especially, and lots of exotic objects. So all these things become really treasured, really valuable in the period. So people want that both you know, for the actual wealth, but also I think that the sort of social capital of being out. So in the same way that you know you might go on a gap year and you go, go out and travelling and you come back and you, you sort of tell everyone about your gap year and all these wonderful things you've done, there's a sort of social capital involved in that. And so that also, those connections, those, those sort of experiences also become something very desirable. So all of those things sort of meet up together, I think, to sort of make it a big part of the period. So how do we know that people travelled to Constantinople or to, to North America? As you say, they didn't really write much down, but they must have left things behind. Is that, is that how we can trace the expansion of the Viking expeditions? 
Yes, there's a few ways you can do that. One of the big problems we have in archaeology is that objects can move on their own. Same with ideas. So, you know, designs on objects and art and, and types of buildings, you know, those things can move without people. So you never quite know for sure. But I mean, in general, we, we see certain things that are so specifically Scandinavian and Viking age in all those places, types of houses. And there's, there's sort of big collections of things that, that make it pretty obvious that, that these are Scandinavians or Vikings. But there's also, there's accounts from other people, so people who have met these Vikings and described them, talked about them. So we've got, even though they themselves didn't write them down, we've got those records. And then there's also the work that I do, which is looking at actual skeletons. So we can look at chemical traces that we all have in our bodies of where we've grown up, the sort of food we've eaten, the, the water we've drunk. All of that leaves trace in our bodies that, you know, makes us like walking diaries of our lives. We can look at that now, which is also another fascinating way of pinpointing exactly. Yes. So how does that work? And how detailed can you get? These are presumably chemical signals, are they, um, in parts of the body that, well, survive your death, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of working out where somebody grew up and where they came from, we look at isotopes in teeth, in tooth enamel, because we literally are what we eat. So everything you eat and drink becomes part of your skin and your hair and your bones. And those elements that are incorporated into your food have little chemical variations that reflect the sort of place that your food was grown, you know, the wheat was grown or the water fell as rain. And they're different in different geographical regions. I grew up in Norway, for example, so I took up uh, water, oxygen from the water in Norway that I was drinking as a child. That became part of my tooth enamel when that's formed in childhood. It never changes. So my teeth have locked in the oxygen isotopes from Norway. So if I pull that one of my own teeth and analyse it in the lab, that would show me that I came from a colder climate. And then you can look at other things that show the geology, you know, older rock, granite rocks and that sort of thing. Whereas my kids have grown up in the south of England, so they've got teeth that are completely different from mine. So you can look at that. The you know, enamel stays the same. It's really stable. So it lasts for thousands of years, which is fantastic if you're an archaeologist. And yeah, as you can pinpoint it. You can't, it's not unfortunately sort of postcode specific. So it doesn't give you, I can't, you know, I can't pinpoint my home address, but you can say that it's somewhere like Scandinavia. So, so it gives us a really good idea. So it's a broad geographical distribution. You can get a good idea. And then if you find a burial in Constantinople and you look at the teeth, and that person grew up in what's now Norway, it's pretty clear they've travelled from one place to the other. Right. Exactly. And then when you combine that with things like artefacts, maybe grave goods, you know, like uh, the sites I've worked on, Repton in Derbyshire, there's a warrior who's buried with you know, a sword, a Thor's hammer on his neck. And then we can look at his teeth and, and they're very consistent with somewhere like probably Denmark. So then you have that combination of both the objects and also the isotopes. And then, you know, that's a pretty good clue. Did the Vikings leave any graffiti or symbols anywhere? You know, we talk about the Viking runes and things. Did they actually, uh, given that they had a bit of a reputation of, of being um, <laughs> capable of breaking the law, shall we say, did they actually, were they literate at all? Did they write anything? Do we have any records of that on ancient monuments or anything like that? Yeah, we do actually. Quite a lot of it. There's quite a lot of graffiti. Mostly it's quite basic. The most famous, most exciting examples, I think, are in the Hagia Sophia in, in Istanbul. So in what was then Constantinople, which was one of the, the key destinations around the eastern route. So one of those sort of big trading places. 
We know that there was a lot of Scandinavians who travelled there and actually worked as mercenaries, uh, the so-called Varangian Guard, which was the personal bodyguards of the uh, Byzantine Emperor. And in the cathedral, or in the, well, it's now a mosque, up on the railings, there's actually graffiti in several places with names. One of them is Halfdan, so somebody which is a you know proper Scandinavian name, Viking name, and it's in rune, and it basically pretty much says Halfdan was here. And there's somebody else called Arnie down the road. And then there's what's probably a Viking ship on one of the columns as well. And I just love that because you can imagine this bored, <laughs> big hulking, great Viking soldier just scratching away. A Vrangian guard who travelled all that way. He wanted to sort of have an adventure and he's ended up being incredibly well paid, standing around doing absolutely nothing for this Byzantine okay. emperor. He's yeah. bored out of his mind, but he's thinking, well, I'm getting a lot of money. So maybe I'll give it another year and then maybe I'll buy a boat and go somewhere else. I, I love that human side. And whilst I'm not particularly keen on modern graffiti, I, I you know, the, these messages that are left behind from ordinary people are, are somehow very humanising, you know, because <laughs> somebody yeah. was standing there and carved their name. I wonder if that Viking was carving his name going, I wonder if in a few hundred years somebody will read this and wonder who I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think he'd ever have the perspective to think in a thousand years' time somebody was going to sit and talk about me. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe he did. <laughs> maybe he did. Maybe his name has lived on and as much as some people in sagas. You know, he came up yeah. with a really good way of living forever. So the Vikings went east all the way to Constantinople and all the welfare and spices were hugely valuable and fighting men were sought after. And I presume they looked sufficiently different and were were they larger physically than the local people in Constantinople in a broad sense? Yeah, they would have been. And we know that that was noticed as well. So there's this brilliant record by an Arab traveller called Ibn Fadlan, who wrote a sort of travel description. He was uh, essentially on a, a missionary mission on the Volga River. He encountered these people, these Eastern Vikings that are known as the Rus, and uh, he describes them. And there's, there's a few accounts, actually. And in one of these, it's just he explains that these are essentially the sort of tallest and, and most beautiful people he has ever seen. And uh, he explains that they, they really are, you know, bigger. So they're, they're unusual enough for him to, to describe that. So so clearly they, they did stand out quite, uh, quite noticeably. Yeah. And with the physical remains, can you tell how muscled people were or how kind of physically competent, perhaps? I mean... They talk about some of the English longbowmen's bodies being slightly warped by the training that was needed to draw the longbow of the power that they drew it. Is there anything like that that we can tell from the Viking skeletal remains? Unfortunately not. We don't have that evidence, which isn't to say that that wasn't the case, because, yeah, there's lots of bits of the of your bones that, that will, strengthen with the muscle uh, attachments and things like that, will actually alter your your skeleton. So it is possible to see it. And there's lots of examples in the archaeological record of that happening. From the Viking Age, unfortunately, we don't have any. It's partially because a lot of the, the bone material is really badly preserved in Scandinavia. So it's possible that in the future, some of that might come up. But so far, we don't have any evidence. Or it might be that actually, perhaps they weren't as specialised, because that, that really happens when you're very, very specialised, and you do certain things a lot. It does seem like some of the evidence that we have suggests that a lot of people would go out and fight just for a little bit. It wasn't a sort of professional career. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't that sort of really, really intense 
behavior that that would cause a physical change but people might just take part in raids for you know a couple of summers or, or something like that so that could be another reason we just don't quite know okay and of course popular culture often gets things like costumes and hairstyles incredibly theatrically interpreted i mean basically wrong horribly wrong to the point that real vikings would have just laugh uproariously about them um, and i'm particularly keen on armor do we have much evidence in the way that Vikings were armed and armoured or the way they were dressed or the way they held their hair or anything like that? No, not as much as we'd like, unfortunately. And certainly things like helmets, there's only a very tiny number, only really one quite well-preserved helmet from Norway from the Viking Age. There's very few of them. Whether that means that nobody really had helmets or if they were made in several pieces, if they were sort of taken apart. We know lots of metals, iron especially, was recycled and reused. So that can happen quite quickly. And in a battle situation, we know that the opposite side would quite easily go after the battle and go pick up any remains of weapons or or armour and, you know, and actually take it and reuse it or, or recycle it. It's also possible that a lot of leather was used, and obviously leather doesn't save that well in the archaeological record, certainly not in Scandinavia. So those problems do exist. And I mean, there are some records and things like hair. We, we do know things like tattoos in popular culture. It seems like every Viking would have their head shaved, half shaved, and have undercuts and tattoos and all of that sort of thing. But there are some records. Again, it's, it's one of those Arab records um, that explains that some of those Rus people had tattoos, had you know pictures drawn on them. So certain things we do know, we do have some some clothes, but again, it's unfortunately not as well known as we would like. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What about swords and spears, those and shields? Those, I think, have survived a little more. We have a, a bit more of the remains of those, I think. Yes. Certainly swords. We have an awful lot of in Scandinavia. And those are incredibly highly decorated, aren't they, sometimes, with precious metals. Does that indicate wealth or were these high-status weapons that are the ones we found? Yeah, it could be a little bit of both, I think. But I think also... A sword was a very personal thing, and there's lots of records, and certainly in the sagas as well, of swords being named uh, and being essentially almost human-like, but sort of they had personalities and and all these things. So they seem to be very, very special. So it's certainly something that you would invest in, and it would be yours, or it might be passed on. They come into burials quite often. 
interestingly, a lot of them in burials are also deliberately bent and broken for whatever reason, whether that is for a very practical reason, so that nobody would steal them, just dig them up and steal them and reuse them, or if it's some other belief that you have to sort of ritually kill the sword when the person dies, we don't know. But but yeah, no, they really are. And some of them are exceptionally beautifully inlaid with silver and gold. So clearly the sword was very important to the warrior at the time. Which is interesting now. I, I handle my own swords quite a lot. I do quite a lot of training from horseback, totally different period than the Viking period. But because the ones I have are custom made, they are very different. They do feel different in the hand. So I can completely understand how somebody would have a favourite sword or a sword would feel really good to them or very familiar. And interestingly, I find that the sword has a particular way round. And I don't know whether we can tell anything about wear on edges or anything like that. But I've always wanted to ask an expert on swords, historic swords, if you can tell if there's a way round that the sword was used or was it equally used on both sides? Because from my experience, a sword has a particular way around, even though it's double-edged. But spears were probably the main fighting weapon, though, weren't they, in battle? This is part of the problem, right? So we don't necessarily know what was used in a battle. The sources that we have are either random finds that just turn up somewhere on their own, so a sword or a you know spear or whatever, or they're from graves. And both those are sort of quite selective, so... We don't actually have a good source that says, okay, here's the battle, here's, you know, if you've got a thousand men, these are the weapons they had. There's no rule book, <laughs> there's no, no description. We don't have battlefields, so we can't sort of go out and count and say, okay, here's how many broken spears we have. So it's very difficult to say in reality how those things actually happen. So unfortunately, we just don't have those answers. And I suppose it would depend very much on context. I mean, if you were going to just go on an adventure and try and settle somewhere, you would possibly take different equipment than if you were going to go and raid a monastery and you were going up against people that wouldn't fight back. You probably want to move fast, have some big bags so that you can put really important things in there, make sure you bring some rope to tie people up to and then capture them. Um, you weren't really expecting a proper scrap. Whereas if you were going somewhere where you might expect a scrap, you could imagine putting together a totally different set of equipment for that particular mission. And there were certainly bright enough and sensible enough to plan, I would imagine, you know, plan an expedition. Do we know how Viking crews were actually raised? Would, would there be a sort of charismatic leader that would effectively send out the equivalent of a social media message saying, I've got a ship, I'm going to go out in the summer and we're going to go raiding? Do we know how any of that worked at all? We think that's probably what happened more or less. <laughs> I mean, I think some of it was... You know, you it'd be a localized, I think, a lot of the time. So it would be in the local community, there would be a need for it. And so people who were the right age or stage of their lives or, or whatever and, and fit and suited to it would, would join along and they might have some responsibilities, but they probably would also want to because we know that, you know, people were getting paid, so they were getting paid usually in silver for taking part in these missions. So they weren't necessarily forced. Some probably were. But it also seems like some were essentially like mercenaries as well who would just join in. There's plenty of records, not from the Vikings themselves, but others that, you know, people could join in and just essentially just come along. And from the archaeology, from the bones, so the only, well, there's a few graves that we think are from armies, a few mass graves. One of them is the one I've worked on at Repton in Derbyshire, where we've got a burial of nearly 300 people buried together that we think were part of the, the great army, the, the great heathen army. And 
the isotopes from those, so that looking again at those teeth and where they came from, it's really interesting because they're not all from one place. They're from really, really varied places that could be all over Scandinavia. A few also from slightly milder climates, which is a bit odd. But that's really interesting because that shows that it's not just a very local group. It's people from all over the place. So how and why that happens, we don't quite know. But presumably, you know, you can join these forces along the way, however long it sort of works out for you, I suppose. I quite like the idea of a charismatic leader sort of sending messages out saying, all right, I'm looking for a hundred strong men to come with me on an adventure. I just think that would be brilliant if it happened that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of people, you know, they want that fortune, you know, they want all that wealth. And, you know, it's become something that everyone does. And certainly towards the end of the Viking Age, we have so many sources, things like runestones. There's a lot of them in Sweden that towards the sort of turn of the millennium and they talk about where people have gone so there's stones that say such and such went to England such and such went to the east um, and sometimes they say they might have fought in, in Knut's army or, or whatever but there's such great big numbers and, and they're almost like advertising posters saying how much wealth they came back with so if you see everybody else around you it's like that sort of gap year effect again everyone else is doing they're having a great time and they're you know posting their photos and they come back and tell you about all these amazing places they went to the beach in Thailand or whatever and you know when you have all that coming back there's an incentive again for I think especially young people young men presumably to go out so so when that call comes up then people going yeah I could do with a bit of fun for a few years and a bit of wealth. So those runestones are very strong propaganda in any, many ways to encourage other people to do that. It, look, these people had a wonderful time. If you don't get your act together, you're going to have a very boring life instead. Yeah, you know, you're going to miss out. Yeah. So what about the end of the Viking Age? I mean, it's always funny to talk about the end of any particular historical period because self-evidently nobody ever woke up not a Viking. You know, they, they were born a Viking and then died one. But People were born that probably didn't self-identify in the same way. Is there a, a sort of an official end to it, as it were, or is it one of those very sort of blurry things that academics argue about? Yeah, no, we definitely argue. We argue about everything. <laughs> so, of course, it depends a little bit where you are. You know, if you're in England, it's 1066 and, the you know, the, the conquest. But um, in Scandinavia, it depends which country you're in as well. But, I mean, there's definitely something that happens. There's changes that happen that are quite clear. So there is a, a break. You don't have the same rays. You don't have that same outwards movement anymore. But also you have the formation of the kingdoms of Norway, Sweden and Denmark. And that really happens around the millennium around about the year 1000 or a little bit afterwards. And suddenly you have these great big kingdoms that are pretty unified. You've got lots of other social changes. You have things like urbanity. You've got actual proper towns for the first time. You start getting currency, proper money coming in. So there's some really quite significant changes. Of course, the biggest one is Christianity that becomes very almost completely adopted across Scandinavia. So with all of those changes happening, there's a clear shift there. So it isn't specific. It doesn't happen in a day. It doesn't happen at the same time. And you've got, you know, contact, for example, if you look at Britain, you have contact with Scotland and the Orkneys are under Scandinavian and Norwegian rule for a really quite a long time. So you have a lot of connection. You've got more raids going on, but there is a clear change there. There's a difference. So it does make sense to talk about an end. That's interesting because sometimes people have talked about the, the Norman conquest and effectively... It was one set of Vikings fighting against another set of Vikings, really, some people have said. How true is that? Because, of course, England was heavily settled by 
the Danes, as I believe they were largely called at the time, Dane axes, and, and the Britons themselves, or the ethnic Britons, were pushed to Wales and Cornwall and further away places. But the Normans, they were Northmen, weren't they? they that's the, the whole point of the name. They, they settled in France and they were, they were Vikings too. Yeah, absolutely. So the whole, you know, Norman, the whole dynasty really starts with a Scandinavian, with a, well, we don't know if he's Danish or Norwegian, but Rollo, um, who was essentially given Normandy. So yeah, they, they are the Northmen. That's where that comes from. So that whole, you know, William the Conqueror is descended, I think is the something like great great grandson or something of, of Rollo, that first settler. So so they really are Scandinavian as well. But also I think you have to remember that England was very much shaped by Scandinavian, all that contact. So not just the settlers, but also just really not very long before you have someone like Knut. is uh, a Danish king who was actually ruling England and Norway and Denmark at the same time. Uh, so the Scandinavian impact on England really I think must be taken into consideration. It's a huge part of, of England itself. So I think that's, that's absolutely, there's, there's so much more of it than I think people like to think. I always find it funny because it, obviously at school you learn a simplified form of history and it's always sort of Normans who are French and the Saxons who are English and you know the Norman conquest and everything, we still call it that. But in fact, there's basically a whole bunch of roughly tufty Viking descendants having a yeah. big scrap over over who gets the, the, the kingdom. It's not really anything that's mappable in the same way to sort of England or France or, or Norway in, in, in the way we would like to think these days. No, and I think those countries sort of kind of, they form in that period as well, really. So, and then that's part of the key of it, I think. It's really round about that time that, that all these countries, all these nations start to form. So some of it is also, I think, what's been passed on later because they were creating kingdoms, creating countries, all the, the sort of propaganda, everything that the written records relate to that as well. So it was in their benefit to try and make it sound like they were. So maybe that history that we've learned later on is, is quite often quite coloured by those later sources. Yes, and as you know, history is often completely coloured by the contemporary politics of the time and the history of empire you know, is reflected in all sorts of odd things. One record, which is the, the settlement of Iceland, for example, which uh, is recorded in a book. There's a book of settlement, essentially, which is a tiny bit later than the actual settlement itself. But that describes, you know, all those first settlers. But it's also always kind of where they came from specifically in Norway, what region they came from, whose son or daughter they were. It was all related to your family and it was related to the very local region. So it wasn't this kind of big ethnic thing at all. They weren't saying, well, here's a Norwegian. But he was very much, you know, you're from Wiltshire, you're the daughter of such and such or whatever it is. So it's kind of that smaller scale. I think we are so used to thinking on a bigger scale that I think actually for a lot of people, it was much more important who your father was, who your grandfather was, you know, exactly where you grew up. Um, I'd just like to finish on rivers, because we often think of the Vikings as doing everything by sea and landing on the coast. But I believe that rivers were absolutely essential to sort of their strategies and, and your River King's book. I presume it's all about that. Yeah, it really is. And I wanted to, when I wrote that book, I wanted to shift the focus off the big sea journeys and off the, you know, expeditions across the North Atlantic or whatever, because I think actually it is those internal journeys that have such a huge impact. If you think about England, so the site that I've spent you know, the last decade working on in Derbyshire, Repton, that's really right 
in the center of the country and actually to get there with a huge force of several thousand is quite tricky if you think about you know muddy winter in England and all those people and you're trying to move quite swiftly around the country but it is right on the river Trent and the Trent is like a motorway and super convenient and you can just go in the Humber and you can get down and right into the country so so fast and if you look at all the sites especially the early raids um, you know they start on the coast and then they start moving inland. All the big sites are all located along rivers. And in Eastern Europe, it's so crystal clear. The way you can get from the Baltic and down to the Black Sea on the rivers. And that route, you know, opening up that sort of back route with those networks is absolutely incredible. And I think that really is, to my mind, almost, you know, more important than going across the sea because it just taps into so many other networks and you can go, you know, overland, and also, I think the other thing they did was to control those rivers. So they controlled the trade. They controlled who could go. They're quite easy to control, you know, whereas the big sea, you can just go across in a slightly different direction and nobody can stop you. But a river is so narrow. If you can stop that, it's like having a, a toll road or something like that. You know, you can you can really control movements so much. And I think that's one of the things that the Vikings did so, so well. And of course, their boats were perfectly suited to shallow rivers. And of course, you had the two options. You can sail if the wind is going in the right direction, or you row. And they were pretty fast at rowing and kept them fit. Yes, exactly, exactly. So it's just perfect, really. And I think coming back to what we talked about earlier, about that technology that really made this all happen, is is the boats and it was the ability. And they were pretty tough people. But if you look at somewhere like the geography of Norway you really travel by boat. So almost rivers are a bit like the coastline and all the fjords. It's quite similar as a, as a sort of idea, that the way you have to travel. So I think that kind of makes sense to me. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, look, we've only just really scraped the surface of the Viking Age, but it's been fascinating talking to you about it. I'd love to talk again in a little bit more detail. I'm, I'm particularly fascinated by the sort of science behind finding out where people are from and, and what they might have done in their lives. But we've run out of time now to do that. If people want to find out, you've got your book, River Kings. And is there anything else you'd want to sort of, you know, a website or a, you know, people following you on Twitter or anything like that to find out more? Yeah, absolutely. No, welcome to me. I do post quite a lot on Twitter. Um, so my Twitter handle is just at Kat Jarman. And I've got a podcast as well called Gone Medieval, where I talk more about, well, lots of topics, the medieval topics, especially Vikings, <laughs> as much as I can, various films and documentaries. So, um, so yeah, just, just search online and there, there should be things coming up. Wonderful. Thank you so much for talking with us and I look forward to speaking to you again. Yeah, no, likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.